And now, uh, continuing to focus on Jesus by opening up uh, the Bible, uh, which points to him in so many different ways. And so uh, we're, we go through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse on Sunday morning. We've been doing Mark for a long time. We're going to even touch into chapter 9. So this is kind of like the halfway point uh, of the gospel um, that we're going to get to today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, 31 is where we're going to start. You can open up there. We'll get to that in just a moment. Just a, a general statement and then have a couple of examples um, that I think will help introduce the sermon well today. Um, and that is this. Here's a statement. Our actions flow from our identity. That is, because of who we are, because of whatever identity that we have, we will be expected to do certain things. We will have certain responsibilities because we have a certain identity. That's kind of maybe a little bit uh, vague until I give you a couple of examples. Okay, So, for example, um, there's things that are expected of us because we have a certain role or we have a certain identity. So uh, because of Super Bowl Sunday, one football example, if you are, um, been a fan of the Minnesota Vikings for some time, if you are identified as a Minnesota Viking, like you're an actual player on the Minnesota Vikings football team, you can expect, because of that identity, that you're going to watch the Super Bowl on TV every year and never play in it. You can just expect that, right? Like that is... That is the activity that goes with that identity. Watching the Super Bowl on TV, eating wings, like a lot of other people in the nation, not playing in it. Um, if you're a mom, you can expect, if that's your identity, you're identified as mom, you can expect to have very little time by yourself. Maybe not even in the bathroom, right? Like you'd have very little time by yourself and you're going to be worn out. That's just something you can expect if you're a mom. If you're an Olympic athlete, you can expect to work your tail off day after day after day and live a life of discipline because you have that identity as an Olympic athlete. If you're a firefighter, you can expect that you're going to put yourself in dangerous situations for the good of other people, right? If you're a soldier, you can expect that you're going to follow orders that could result in even your death. So with whatever identity it is that we have, there are certain actions or responsibilities or expectations that come along with that. Last week, we finally saw this turning point in the Gospel of Mark where, where we've heard lots. Jesus has been revealing to people who He is, but it seems like no one quite gets it yet. But finally, a turning point here in the middle of chapter 8 last week where Jesus comes to the disciples point blank and asks them this question. A very important question that we all need to ask ourselves. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's asking them a question about his identity. Who do you say that I am? And for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we see a person get this right. And Peter, on behalf of the other disciples, answers and he says, you are the Christ. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who's come to rescue. Peter declares that about Jesus. That is true about Jesus' identity. But if what I just said is true about all those other things, we need to expect this. Because of Jesus' identity as the Christ, there are going to be certain actions or responsibilities or expectations that we have of Him because of that identity. What does it mean to be the Christ? 
And we can say the same thing for those of us who seek to follow Christ. We're Christians. We're ones who follow Christ. Because we identify ourselves as Christians, what then is expected of us? What responsibilities do we have? What actions can we expect because we have that identity? We're going to see that as we look at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And so if you have a Bible, turn there. And by the way, if you uh, forget to bring your Bible with you when you come on Sunday morning, we've got a bunch of them on that uh, white cart in the back. And so grab coffee in one hand and a Bible in the other, and then uh, just encourage you to have it in front of you as we're uh, going through it in the morning. But let's stand if you're able to as we read God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You can be seated. If you follow along in that outline in your bulletin, you'll see two main points today. One, the cost of being the Christ. The second one, the cost of being a Christian. So if you look, we're going to start in verse 31. What are people expecting, right? This declaration has just been made in verse... I'll read it again because it's so important. Verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Right? You are the Christ. Because he is the Christ, that would have... Maybe to us that has different, different ideas pop into our mind, but people that would have heard that declaration would have had a certain set of expectations that went along with that. Would have understood, this is what it means to be the Christ. Their expectation generally was that they thought the Christ was going to come to be the king who would sit on a throne and release them from their oppression under Roman rule. An earthly king. That's what they expected out of The Christ. Somebody who would come in earthly power. Somebody that would come to bring victory. Somebody that would come to conquer the nations, right? That's what they were expecting. But they must have been shocked. When right after revealing His identity as the Christ, in verse 31, we hear Jesus say, here's what it means to be the Christ. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's what He called Himself often, must suffer Many things. Now that would have been shocking to them. Wait, the Christ, the one who's going to come and and, and win victory for us? What are you talking about? Now that you've called yourself the Christ, isn't this the time when you ascend to the throne, Jesus? But Jesus says, no. The Son of Man has come and He must suffer 
many things. The idea of a suffering Messiah was pretty foreign to pretty much everybody. Now we can look back in the Old Testament and we can see it. Read the book of Isaiah and hear this, these messages of the suffering servant. But when they read those in Isaiah and studied those, they wouldn't have been thinking of those in light of the Messiah. Right? So they were, this would be totally unexpected, that Jesus was coming to suffer. Now they might think, okay, well maybe he'll suffer against, as he fights against these, these pagan Gentile nations, right? That's how suffering's going to come. He's going to suffer because he's fighting against pagan Gentiles, and they're ruthless and cruel, right? But then the next thing he says is this. Look at this. He must suffer many things and be rejected. By who? By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It wasn't going to be the, the pagan Gentile nations that were going to cause suffering and going to reject the Messiah. It was the very people who had been longing for the Messiah to come and, and teaching about the Messiah. These were going to be the ones who were going to reject Him. And then, the next verb that you see there, it says, and be killed. The disciples at this point have to be thinking, how is that going to work? How can someone bring victory to his people by being put to death? That doesn't make any sense. I'm sure they probably were so shocked at this point that they didn't even hear Jesus say, and after three days rise again, pretty clear they don't understand everything that Jesus is saying yet at this point. But it says that Jesus said it plainly to them. He wasn't trying to trick them. He was trying to be clear, this is what you can expect. Because I am the Christ, I will suffer, I will be rejected, and I will be killed, and then I will rise again from the dead. That's what you can expect, because I am the Christ. This is, uh, the, this, the disciples aren't going to get it right away. If you look, actually, I skipped a couple words at the beginning of verse 31. It says, and he began to teach them. This is going to be the first of three times that we see in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is teaching the same thing over and over to his disciples. Because they don't get it right away. They don't even get it by the third time, right? And so Jesus began to teach them about this. But it's going to be a continuing kind of thing. It takes a while for it to sink in. We, we know that. Like you get new information. Something drastically changes in your life. And everybody expects that it's just going to change everything right away. You know it's going to change things. Maybe this is like the death of a loved one or something, right? Maybe just some new news like, hey... I just got fired, you know, like, and you come back from, like, and maybe right away you're not even sure. You're like, well, what should we have for supper? You don't even know exactly how to process that. But after a while, some of this new information that you were really kind of shocked by begins to sink in, right? Now that's what you're going to see happen in the disciples over time, but at this point it hasn't sunk in yet. It's going to take some time to process this because this was so different from what they expected. Now, some people process things. Maybe you're one of these people that you process things. As you're trying to think through something and understand something, you do it by talking, right? Maybe you have one of those people in your family, right, that like they just, they just talk. They think out loud by, by talking and processing through that way. Um, Peter's that way. And so you see Peter in verse 32. Let's look at verse 32. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Interesting, you have Jesus saying, here's how I'm going to bring about victory and triumph. Here's how I'm going to be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be the Messiah by suffering, being rejected, and being killed. And Peter will have none of that. 
That doesn't make any sense to him. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. That's a strong word. He's not just saying, oh, are you sure about that, Jesus? That same word rebuke is the same word that, that is used to talk about Jesus rebuking demons. And this is what Peter is doing with Jesus, rebuking him and saying, no way, Jesus, it can't be this way. Jesus, you must be off on this. You can't be right. That's not what the Messiah comes to do. See, what Peter wanted is Peter wanted the Christ without the cross. Peter wanted the Christ without the cross. Suffering, rejection, death, that didn't sound much like good news to Peter. He wanted some good news, and this didn't sound like good news. How is Jesus going to respond? Look at verse 33. Look at Jesus' response in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, a lot of times when Jesus responds to people who are ignorant like us, people who are just hard-hearted like us, he responds with gentleness. But this is not a gentle response from Jesus, is it? Why does Jesus respond so harshly? Even calling Peter Satan, calling him an adversary, calling him the one who is an adversary, is one who goes against. What is Peter going against? By saying, Jesus, you can't die. What is Peter going against? He's going against God's plan. God's plan that he had established was that the Christ came so that he might suffer, be rejected, and die. That's what it means to be the Christ. That's what we needed from Jesus. This was God's plan. And so when Peter says, no, it's not going to happen this way, it's Peter standing in the place of God saying, God, your plan is not a good plan. Jesus doesn't have to die. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, Peter, I must die. You get behind me. You do not stand in the way of this, Peter. This is the purpose for which I've come. Jesus came. That is why He came. You know that, right? He didn't just come to be a good teacher. You know, so far in the book of Mark, we've seen some teaching by Jesus and a whole lot of miracles. But that is not the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus came so that He might live a perfectly obedient life that we couldn't live in our place. That He might die a death that we deserve to die in our place. And that He might be raised again from the dead so that we might be saved. Right? That's why Jesus came. And so for Peter to say, no, Jesus, you can't die, Jesus is not going to take that lightly because he's going against God's plan for Jesus. I want you to turn, if you could, really quickly to the book of Romans. If you're in Mark, you go through Luke, John, Acts, and then you get to Romans. Romans chapter 5. I just want us to look really quickly because I want us to understand. Because Peter didn't get it, and I want to be sure that we're not walking out of here not getting it either. I want us to get it. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Here's what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen to this. Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Listen, if we want to be right with God, we need to be justified. That means declared 
righteous. Right? And how are we going to be declared righteous? The only way for us to be declared righteous is by His blood. Jesus needed to die. If Jesus doesn't die and shed His blood, we cannot be made right before God. You can't work really hard at earning God's favor. There's no way that you can do that on your own. We needed Jesus to die. That's the only way to be justified. But then there's more. Much more shall we be saved by Him. So how do you get saved by Him? From the wrath of God. It's, again, by His blood. Jesus needed to die in order to save us from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Okay, so we were enemies of God. How do we get away from being enemies of God? How do we move from being enemies of God to people accepted by God? Do we earn God's acceptance? Do we get out of enemyhood by acting really well? And working really hard and trying harder to be a better person? No. We're reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through His life. We needed Jesus to die. The fact that Jesus died and Jesus was going to die is not supposed to be cause for rebuke. It's supposed to be cause for rejoicing. Because this is what we needed. We needed Jesus to die. So, I mean, message here for us certainly is this. Do you trust in Christ? Do you not just know that He is the Christ, but that He is the Christ? And the way that He earned your salvation for you is that He lived a perfect life and died a death in your place and was risen from the dead. And the way that you get what He offers, what He died for, is you get that through faith in Christ. It's a free gift. So I'll talk about the cost of being a Christian here in a moment. You need to recognize that becoming a Christian costs you nothing. It is a free gift given to you by faith. You trust in the finished work of Jesus and you are a Christian. But if you become a Christian, just like if you are the Christ, you can expect this to be what is expected because you are the Christ. If you become a Christian, what can you expect? We like to think that what you can expect if you become a Christian is that, well, I'm just trying hard now to be obedient to God. And so I would think that the amount of suffering in my life is going to decrease just a bit, right? Because I've put my faith in Christ, and so it should make things easier, right? Well, let's look at verses 34 and following. What does it mean? Be a Christian. What can be expected once you take on that identity? And calling the crowd, it says in verse 34, to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, okay, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to come after him, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, okay? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This is where it gets a little bit sticky, because just like Peter wanted a crossless Christ, we would like to think that we could live life as a crossless Christian. It would be nice, we would think, if we could get through life with a minimal amount of suffering, with a minimal amount of 
denying ourselves. We'd like to just satisfy ourselves. That's what's natural to us. But Jesus says here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. This is, this is a tough altar call that Jesus is giving here. He's not trying to break down any kind of barrier. It's almost like he's trying to put up barriers and say, hey, if you want to come and follow me, he doesn't say, this isn't like the kind of evangelism that's like, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what I'm hearing here. You hearing that here? I'm not hearing that here. This is the kind of evangelism, like I read a, a blog earlier this week, and the guy said, Christians are essentially to believe that God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. That's evangelism. You know, share the gospel with somebody. Hey, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. You want in? And, and that's kind of what you're hearing here from Jesus. If you would come after me, if you would follow me, then deny yourself. Take up your cross. So how do we, how do, we do that? How, how are we, our, if our goal in life is comfort and safety and security and just self-fulfillment, then we're going to be at odds with what Jesus is calling us to as Christians. Right? I read another quote this week saying this, To everyone wanting a safe, untroubled, comfortable life free from danger, stay away from Jesus. The danger in our lives will always increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Jesus. So if you want a a safe, untroubled, comfortable life free from danger, then just stay away from Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you will come after me, this is what you can expect. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. The cross, we kind of like water down the cross a lot. We talk about like, well, God has me working next to this really annoying guy at work. That's just my cross to bear. That's not your cross to bear. The cross was an instrument of execution and torture where people were put to death. That's what Jesus is calling his followers to. That doesn't sound a lot like good news. So is there good news in this? Are there any reasons for, for saying yes to this? For saying, yes, then I will follow you. Even if it means denying myself. Even if it means potentially dying. I will follow you, Jesus. What's the reason that we have to do that? Look at verses 36 and following. Verses 36 and 37 say, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is just saying there, hey, you, you have to choose. You want the comforts that the world offers you? You want to like have everything and kind of just live it up like everybody else is living? Be accepted by the world? You want the world? You can't have that and have your soul be saved. It's going to be a choice. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? He asks, Let's look. You know, a lot of people talk about uh, making God a part of my life. That, that, that's like a, I even hear that, you know, when I'm talking to people sometimes, you know, making this comment like, I just, stuff isn't going very well. And I, you know, and I, I just, I need to turn things around. I need to make God a part of my life. Um, that's not what you need. You don't need to make God a part of your life. You need to give God your life. Right? Those are different things. Having God to be a part of your life, like he's just like this little wing off somewhere uh, that you can kind of like, you know, box in on a Sunday morning or whatever. Um, that's not what God comes for. Uh, we ought to give our lives to God, not, not make God a part of our life. 
Um, and then, verse 38, look at verse 38. says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus, he's, the stuff that he's going to share here, it's going to get harder and harder. The things that Jesus is going to say as this book goes on, they're going to become more and more controversial. The easiest thing, if you're a disciple of Jesus, at this point would be to slink back and say, all right, I'm done here. If that's what you're calling me to, and it's just going to get worse from here on out, I'm done. That would be the easiest thing for the disciples. And, and it's like that for us. Our popularity with the world, our acceptance by the world, kind of goes, uh, decreases as our commitment to Jesus increases, right? As we get a little bit more vocal about standing for Jesus and talking about Jesus, our acceptance in the eyes of the world kind of decreases a little bit, which is hard if you're like in middle school, high school. You long for that, that, that acceptance by other people, and, but you know that if you're trusting in Jesus and being vocal about who Jesus is, that your kind of popularity in the eyes of the rest of the world is just going to probably decrease over time, right? The disciples are going to experience that. But Jesus says, don't be ashamed of me. If you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you when I come back. That's verse 38. And then let's go ahead and look at uh, the last verse here, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see this kingdom of God after it has come with power. We have the hope of seeing Jesus in all of his glory. This is a confusing verse, and it's most likely Jesus is referring to his coming death and resurrection, saying people aren't going to die before they experience it. It could also be referring to what we're going to look at next week as Peter, James, and John see him in all his glory on the mountain. But Jesus is saying, what are you, what are you fixing your eyes on as you go through all this? I'm telling you that you're going to see the kingdom of God come, and it's going to come in power. That's part of what gets us through some of the the suffering, some of the call to die, some of the call to deny ourselves that's so unnatural, is we know, we have this hope, that as we seek to obey God's commands and deny ourselves, take up our cross, we hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in His glory, the fact that He will come again. We may lose little things along the way, but if we see Christ as treasure, we're much more willing to do that. Listen, if you don't see Christ as the greatest treasure, then this call to deny yourself and take up your cross to follow him, you're just going to shrug your shoulders at it and say, why? What's the point? But if you recognize that the one who is saying, follow me, is the one who you get to be with forever, and you recognize that that is the greatest treasure of all, Then you could, like Paul, say, For his sake I have lost all things. I consider them all rubbish, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. You could say, like Paul did in Philippians 1, To live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's only going to happen if you see Christ as the greatest treasure. If he's not much of a treasure to you, if he's just like something you want to make a part of your life, then this, this call to deny yourself and take up your cross, why would you do that? But it becomes easier to do as our eyes are fixed on Him. So I want to get practical, though. Two things to kind of get practical here at the end. Because this is one of those messages where it's like, so is Jesus calling me to die? Is that what He's saying? That I can't really be a Christian 
unless I am willing to die. Uh, how do I? How do I even? How do I even do that? I'm mean, like in our culture, we're not even threatened. We're we're so free to do whatever we want. I could talk about Jesus all I want at school or at my workplace, and I'm not even going to be threatened for it, right? I, like I, I preach this here, and then we put it on the internet. Anybody anywhere can listen to it, and, and I'm not even scared, right? So, so how do we even apply this part to us? Is it possible that Jesus could call you to actually literally die for the sake of the gospel? And the answer is maybe. He could be calling you to that. I, I read a story this week uh, about a Scottish pastor named John Patton. This was quite, quite a few years ago. Uh, he was serving a growing church for 10 years. He was my age. He was 33. Um, and uh, serving this church while he was pastoring, though, God gave him this burden, this burden for a people group in the Pacific Islands that were known to be cannibalistic. He had heard the story of two missionaries who had gone 20 years before and were both killed and cannibalized. But he was given a burden by God for these people, and so he told his congregation, it's I'm going, and his wife as well. And so that's what they did. But, but before going, there was an older Christian in his church who loved his pastor and told him this. The older Christian's name was Mr. Dixon. I think I put the thing on there. But here's what he said to him. Listen to this answer. Love this answer. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. Don't ever tell that to an old guy, by the way. Um, there to be eaten by worms. But I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Isn't that cool? So he says to the old guy, he says, you know, he says hey, you know what? Your body is going to get eaten as well. But your body, just like my body, is going to be risen in the image of our Redeemer. Just like Jesus was risen from the dead, I'm going to get a new body. Whether my old body was eaten by worms or by cannibals, I don't care. I want to live my life being obedient to and honoring Jesus above all else. And these people need to hear the gospel. Could it be that God calls us to something that extreme? And it could be. I don't want to write that off. That's a possibility. The result of this, by the way, um, you know, I mean, this is one of those, you know, for sure, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life kind of thing. He took his wife, they had a, a baby when they were there, but he had to dig the graves uh, with his own hands of both his wife and his daughter. But in his years of time there, many of those people came to faith in Christ. And he, his story inspired many others to go to other unreached people groups uh, for the sake of the gospel, even despite great danger. So, it's possible that God would call us to deny ourselves and take up our cross in this way. But I think it's also possible. I don't want us to just say, well, God's not calling me to that. So I guess I just go on living life as I always live life, and that's it. I don't think that's really what we're, God's, Jesus is getting at here in this passage. I think we also need to recognize this, that we can choose to die to ourselves in little ways daily. There's all sorts of opportunity for us on a daily basis to deny ourselves. It's not natural. It's totally natural for us to satisfy ourselves. 
So what does it look like? What does it look like to deny ourselves on a daily basis? As we follow Christ, because we follow Christ, because we've been identified with Christ, we live lives that aren't so focused on ourselves. So that, so that we get home, maybe, after a long day of work, realizing that we're totally spent. And the easiest thing to do would be to just flip on the TV and just be served, right? Or, 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 or just to just go home and just kind of like be in your own little world for a period of time. But maybe one way that we deny ourselves is we just say, you know what? I'm not going to do what feels best to me right now. I'm going to come home and I'm going to serve. Whoever's in my home, if you've got other people living with you, it, it's time for me to just serve them. Did we do that? I think we could. Maybe we, uh, we recognize in the middle of some kind of argument, maybe with your spouse, maybe with somebody else, you know what? I'm going to deny myself here. My desire in this is to win and show that I'm right again, right? But maybe denying yourself looks like saying, you know what? This, this person that I'm arguing with is way more important than the argument that we're having. And so I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to just put this away for right now. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody. Maybe it's just a, a little thing that happens during the day and you can kind of do whatever you do. What I do when I get upset is I just like uh, don't say anything and, and then do something like put dishes away or something like that. That's what I do. I don't know what your method is, um, but maybe you just deal with that and, and just offer forgiveness right away. Maybe it's something that happened a long time ago that you're still dealing with a lot of hurt and pain from that you need to say, I'm going to deny myself by offering forgiveness to somebody else. Maybe it's by fasting this week. It's, it's one thing we're encouraging a number of you to do this week is, is fasting, to deny yourself food for a period of time so that you might be in prayer for yourself, for others, for other people in our church family. I uh, was reading uh, an interview this week um, w- with uh, Jenny Allen. She's the one who's uh, the, the Bible study leader um, for the ladies' Bible study that starts this week on Tuesday. And in an interview, she said this, The scariest and safest thing I've ever done is to finally and completely surrender my rights, to hand complete control of my life and my dreams over to my God. How it practically plays out involves a thousand little deaths. I like that phrase, a thousand little deaths. From forgiving friends who have wronged us, to walking through a cancer diagnosis, to taking initiative for orphans, to fighting those dark sins that we just can't seem to beat. For me, the most common form of surrender is in letting go of playing it safe and starting to risk comfort for God's glory and the good of others. So it looks like to deny ourselves, to, to be risky in ways that we could look at and say, well, this would be safest. This would make the most sense for me and for our family right now. But to look at that and say, maybe, maybe God's calling me to, to risk something here. Maybe that's what God's calling us to. Maybe it might look ridiculous in the eyes of everybody else. One more quote to read you, a longer one, but it's, it's good. God might be calling us to ridiculous things. In the world's estimation, Christians do seemingly ridiculous things. They move their families thousands of miles away to share the gospel. They adopt children when they already have a full house. They forfeit jobs that would require them to sacrifice their integrity. They give to others financially at a great cost to themselves. They're labeled as both foolish and ignorant because they believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. They get involved in messy relationships and keep pursuing peace, even when it would be much easier to let the relationship go. Why do Christians make their lives more difficult instead of pursuing comfort and ease? Listen to this. It's because they follow Jesus, who left the comforts of heaven 
to enter into the difficulties of this broken world. Jesus came to provide abundant life for his followers. However, the full life promised in the gospel isn't found by making our lives easier. It's found by laying down our lives. So, are we, uh, are we ready for that? For, for just denying ourselves? And, and maybe it's the big thing, and maybe it's just some small ways this week that we think of, okay, because of what Christ has done for me, all these things that are so important to me, I'm going to just deny myself. I'm going to, I'm going to put others, I'm going to consider others as more important than myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to serve others this week. That's my goal for this week, to deny myself in some way, in many ways maybe, throughout this week. But even that's hard to do because it's not natural. And the only way that we can do it is we do it as we focus our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But before being seated at the right hand of the throne of God again, he endured suffering and hardship and pain and even death. And so we must keep our eyes fixed on him, knowing that he is a greater, he's the, a greater treasure.